Good evening. Uh, it's good to see you all. As many of you know, I think most of you have probably been here on a recurring basis, but we're going through 2 Timothy in this Bible study. And tonight we'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you want to take a moment and turn there. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 26. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would bless this time as we look into your word. I ask that you would use it to build us up, Lord, to encourage us and also to convict us where necessary. I ask that you would just guard my mouth and that your word would come through me, Lord, that you would just use your spirit to guide my speech, that it would be honoring to you, and that it would be profitable for all of us tonight. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So I'm assuming most of you have been here on Tuesday, or excuse me, Wednesday nights studying Second Timothy, but just in case not, in terms of where we are with this book, so You've got Paul who is in prison for the second time. And we know from the content of this letter, he, he understands that his time is coming up. He is almost done. He talks about how he has finished the race, he has run well uh, and persevered to the end. So there's this finality to this letter in which we understand Paul is writing this to Timothy to encourage him in spite of the suffering that Paul is currently facing. That's kind of what we spoke about last week. Paul talks about being burdened by chains, but that the word of God is not bound, even though Paul is bound. And Paul talks in other places about how God uses his imprisonment for his good. 
So this letter is a very personal letter to Timothy. Now, Timothy is in Ephesus over the church in Ephesus. Paul left him after being there for three years in ministry and has left Timothy in charge to lead this church, to provide future leaders as well. So as we look at this passage, I want to turn back to the beginning of the chapter. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, in the beginning of our passage, and later in 14, Paul says, remind them of these things. So, so the them in this passage is more specifically talking about as you train up teachers to teach the gospel, this is instruction for Timothy in how to handle that. How do we train people to teach God's word correctly and handle it well? How do we avoid problems? All throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, some of Paul's final letters to leaders in the church, he warns heavily against false teachers, and we see some of that here tonight. Um, so Paul says, remind them of these things. So these men that are to be teachers are to be reminded of what Paul has just talked about. Namely, he says to Timothy in verse 8 of chapter 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So the point here is, as, as, and because this whole passage is mainly concerned with the content of speech, as, as pastors and leaders of the church are teaching God's word, how do we do that well? And so he's saying, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That goes to the divinity of God. It talks about God's power over death. He talks about the offspring of David, that Jesus did fulfill all of those prophecies that he was foretold of in, in the Old Testament. So we know that Jesus is Lord and that he is in the line of David. Uh, and then he points out that the word of God is not bound. Um, he then talks about God not being able to deny himself, that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The point here is that our faith is not determined on us. It's on God. Um, but we must persevere to the end. Uh, if we don't, God will deny us. If That means we don't have a true saving faith. So in the light of all this persecution that the church is facing, we need to remember we must persevere uh, to receive God's blessing. Um, and if we are faithless, God is still faithful. He is still saving those who are his. He is still upholding his word. He is still a righteous judge. So in light of those things, Paul says in 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Um, so in light of the gospel, you know, stay focused on the gospel. And he tells them, charge them before God. This is not uh, the minister's job, the pastor's job, the leader teacher's job uh, is to prepare God's people to do good. Uh, works through the scriptures. It's to point out what God's word says uh, and how we are to live in light of that. And that is all in the presence of God, that ultimately all of these men who are desiring to be teachers are accountable to God. So he says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. 
later, Paul says um, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. He also talks about avoid irreverent babble. So you could get the impression that Paul is saying, don't really worry about what's being said. Like, it could, you could take this and look at it and say, well, Paul's kind of pointing out, like, words aren't really all that important. The opposite is, is the case. That could not be more, more, yeah, that couldn't be the more wrong opinion at all. Um, when we talk about not quarreling about words, it's helpful, let's look at uh, 1 Timothy 6. Starting in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, so the sound words of Jesus Christ, so talking about words in relation to Christ, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce, let me list a ton of stuff, of sin. The point here is not that words are unimportant. The point is that words are incredibly important. But when he talks about not quarreling over words in 2 Timothy, it's about man's words, man's opinions, man's thoughts. This is not about quarreling about God's words because he points out in 1 Timothy the contrast is between what does Jesus say, Jesus' words, if, if that's treated with... Um, no respect if we are concerned about what we have to say our opinions that's quarreling about words um, which only ruins the hearers it's not leading to godliness it's not leading to repentance um, so as we as ministers as preachers as teachers uh, of god's word we are not to quarrel about words not just give our own opinions uh, which does no good but only ruins the hearers and then he says do your best, and this is not just to Timothy, but also to these teachers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this could sound like it's a workspace kind of system, right? So we're, he says, do your best. That sounds a lot like effort, working hard. Um, it's dependent on us, and that is kind of true. But he's not talking about this in terms of the gospel. The gospel is still through grace alone. What he's talking about here is as we take God's word, we are to treat it with the utmost respect and to be diligent in how we handle it. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, means that we are diligently seeking to understand God's word rightly. Not, not being irreverent about it, not treating it lightly, but handling it as it should be. Um, he then says, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, now that, obviously we're talking God's word, the word of God. Um, so this indicates that there is a wrong way to handle God's word. Um, that there is a way of handling God's word that does not lead to godliness, that will tear people apart. Um, uh, so some examples of that uh, does anyone, everyone knows the verse, uh, all things work together for, for good, right? Everyone hears that. We hear that all the time. Um, there was a show I watched that was horrible on Netflix called, uh, 
Uh, something about a flight plan or something like that. Anyway, but they kept repeating that phrase over and over, and it was completely wrong. It wasn't even close. They just kept saying all good things. I'm like, that's like, like what the heck? That's not even close. Um, you know, what does it actually say? Does anyone know? I can't hear. I hear someone talking. I just can't hear. Right. All right. So let me actually just turn there. <laughs> uh, where did I put that? Romans 5 eight. Thank you. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been just... No, that's not it. Eight twenty-eight. All right, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So that is a common example of people taking God's word and saying, well, I interpret it this way or to not understand it well. Um, there is a right way of knowing God's word. A lot of people think that, well, you know, I read God's word and this is what it means for me and I've interpreted it this way. That is not rightly handling the word of God. That is treating it as though, well, God says all this, but then it's up to me to figure out like what all this means and I can just pick and choose what I want. And that's a great example. Um, is this verse. It gets used in cultural, in our society all the time. It gets used by Christians rather flippantly to say, well, all things work together for good. Um, and that is true only of those who have been called according to his purpose, those who have been saved, those who have a genuine love for God. And that also doesn't mean in this life. If we read the rest of the Bible, even Paul's telling Timothy, you're going to suffer. Life is hard for the Christian. There's no promise of earthly um, peace. I mean, there's an inner peace that we are promised, but not comfort, relaxation. There will be suffering. There will be hardship. There will be great difficulty. Um, so when we look at handling the word of God rightly, uh, that's one of the pitfalls that many people fall into is they think it's up to them to interpret God's word uh, and not to understand First, we have to figure out what was the original intent of the author, because there is an actual original intent of the author. What does it mean in context of the whole book? What does it mean in context of the whole Bible? We can't just pick and choose what verses we want to listen to, and it's a very difficult thing to handle the Word of God well. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect in it. It does mean we seek to, what is the heart of God in these things? What is God trying to teach me? What is God trying to tell me? And there are passages that are incredibly difficult. Uh, Jesus says in Luke, unless you hate your father and mother um, and your brother and sister and your spouse uh, and even your own life, you, you're not a disciple of mine. And it's like, okay, so God says I should hate my, my father and mother. Are you, what? <laughs> so how do we, how do we understand that? in light of scripture like we can 
that's a verse, and I picked that because that's a verse that is commonly used by atheists and other people who try to disprove the Bible. They say, well, Jesus says to love your neighbor, but he also says to hate your family and, and all this other stuff. So how can we possibly understand that? Well, as you look at the rest of Scripture, we can understand that the point of that passage is not to actually hate those people. The point is that we should love Christ so much that the way that we treat our earthly relationships and even our own life, where the world would look at it and be like, well, you just you hate yourself. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you do that to your family? And in America, that's not real, a reality that we are faced with often, but in other parts of the world, that is something that people deal with daily. They have to pick their, their faith in Christ over their family, and their family hates them. And they say, why are you doing They don't understand. They're like, why are you doing this to us? And they're like, well, Jesus, you know, he's, he's going to save me. I have to follow him. So, and that's an example of a passage that's a little bit more difficult to understand. But we can't just look at it and be like, I can't understand this. You know, there's always resources available to us to talk to someone else, to talk to a pastor, to talk to an elder, uh, to talk to other believers, or to really just dig down and, and what, is, what is the point of this? Why is Jesus saying this? How do we understand it? Um, so as we, try to, as, as we try to rightly handle the word of truth, we always need to be looking for what is the purpose of this. It's not just what do I get out of it. First, we need to understand what is the author saying because there is an original intent and there are tons of applications that can come from that original intent. But there's only one correct interpretation, one correct original intent of the author. And sometimes it's not as crystal clear. Sometimes it's debated heavily. So, but for the most part, it's pretty pretty clear. If we have a heart to, to desire and serve God. All right, uh, verse sixteen. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So. You know, I had to look up irreverent because I'm, you know, my vocabulary is not the best. So uh, irreverent means it's just a lack of respect, not giving due respect to something that is obviously worthy of it. Um, it's to treat it with disdain. So irreverent, and then babble is not just merely like babies, like, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, it, babble is a way of speaking in which people just ramble on and on and on and they just speak vastly and don't really consider what they're saying. So the point here is as a, as a teacher of God's word, we are to avoid this. This only leads to ungodliness. Um, <clears throat> and this is, again, not talking in this way. The point is not to talk quickly about God's word or... Or, or anything like that. Irreverent babble is more, this is man's opinion coming out. Um, oftentimes, I've heard many pastors where there's very little scripture used, there's very little content of God's word used, and they just espouse a lot of their own opinions. Thankfully, I'm, in my opinion, and not that we want to talk about opinions all, in my opinion, that doesn't happen here. Very rarely do, we f do I ever hear anything where I can't say that's directly out of Scripture. Our, our pastors are very faithful in this, in the rightly handling of God's Word. And I feel very blessed to be under their leadership. Um, 
but as, as we train new people up, which is some of what this class is, that is the point. Timothy is to have these teachers avoid irreverent babble. It leads people astray. It leads them into ungodliness. And it says their talk will spread like gangrene. Um, now, I also had to look up gangrene because I know that's like a disease or something. But, you know, um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, gangrene is vicious. Um, it's usually something, and again, I'm not a doctor, so bear with me. Um, it's like some type of poisoning of the blood. And the only way to stop it was to quickly amputate. Uh, it has, otherwise, it has a death rate of like 80%. It is extremely deadly. It comes in very fast. And unless you amputate the affected flesh, it's literally flesh is just dying on you. And then it poisons your blood, and it will quickly kill you. So when you have gangrene, you have to cut it off. You've got to deal with it immediately. So the, that's a pretty vivid picture, word picture, uh, that this irreverent babble um, is like gangrene. And, you know, we think about it in relation to the body of Christ. If there's a leader, a teacher, who's, you know, teaching wrongly, and that's gangrene, that's going to kill the whole body if it is not severed. And that's why Paul brings attention to Timothy, because Timothy would know this. He says, among them, and he's pointing out these are false teachers, these are men who have given in to uh, quarreling about words and irreverent babble, are harmonious. Harmonius and Philitus, who has swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, we know from 1 Timothy, Paul already has referenced Hymenaeus. He's, he excommunicated him from the church. He says, I have given Hymenaeus over to the, over to the Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. So this is church discipline happening in, in, you know, in actuality. So Paul's Paul sees this as a threat. He sees that this false teaching, uh, specifically with these two men, that the false teaching of that the resurrection has already happened is extremely deadly to the new church, to God's people. This is deadly. And the only way to deal with it is to cut it off. So there is this immediate separation, this church discipline, where Paul gives them over the devil that they may repent and stop blaspheming. So, uh, just thinking in terms of church discipline, uh, Jesus tells us how to do it, Paul tells us how to do it. The point of it is not to condemn people. The point of it is to lead them to repentance. So, Paul says that about these men, he, but his desire, his desire is that they would learn to stop blaspheming. So, these were men in the church, they were espousing these, these false doctrines that that the resurrection had already happened, and it's leading people astray. And they aren't willing to change their speech. Paul clearly must have gone to them and talked to them about it, and then he said they had to leave the church. And the point is not um, to condemn them. We, Paul has no ability to judge them uh, in eternal ways. He can't cast them to hell. The point is that they would repent. So Paul sees this as a loving action that the only way that these men can realize the error of their ways is to be outside the church and see that they need to change. Um, and that can be true of believers. Jesus talks about this, but it's not so much about the teaching, but, you know, unrepentant sin that, you know, we go to someone and they're not willing to listen to us about this, you know, ongoing sin in their life. We go to the pastors and elders and, and the rest of the church eventually, 
And if people are not willing to, to repent and move on, then the loving thing, the caring thing for that soul of that person is to kick them out of the church, that they would see what they are missing, that they would understand, no, these actions are eternally damning. You know, we're not condemning people when we do that. We're, we're sending them out, praying that they come back and repent. So it's a loving thing. Um, <clears throat> okay. They are upsetting the faith of some. This false teaching of the, re the resurrection already happening is upsetting the faith of some. Now, this word upsetting is to mean literally like capsize a boat. This is not like people are like, oh, I don't really like that. You know, it makes me feel uncomfortable. No, the point is this has led people completely astray. They are no longer followers of Christ. They have fallen into this pitfall of this false teaching and are wrongly, you know, they think they're following God, but they're not. So this could seem kind of overwhelming to Timothy. You know, he's, he's, he's telling Timothy, commission these men to teach God's word. Um, do your best to, to handle God's word well. Make sure that these men are not um, teaching wrongly or leading people astray. And yet it's happening. People are being led astray. There are these false teachers. Um, and then Paul gives this, you know, reaffirming, uh, foundation to Timothy in verse 19. He says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is encouraging to Timothy because it, it points out a couple of things. The Lord knows those who are his. First of all, these people's salvation, the fact that the, some have, have had their faith upset by this false teaching, it's not on Timothy that people have not given their life to God. The Lord knows those who are his means God has called his people and he will have them endure to the end. So even though people have come into the church, they say they're believers, and now they've left following these false teachers. Don't let that bother you. That's not your responsibility. Those are, that's God's people, or they're not God's people, and we have no control over that. Um, and that he hasn't actually lost any of God's people. Does that make sense? Like, God knows his people, and those who leave were never his people to begin with. So it's not that there's been a loss of salvation. It's that they never truly did repent. They never truly had faith in God. They had faith in other things. They desired other things. They enjoyed community that was in the church. But they never truly repented and gave their life to God. Um, and then there's a second encouragement in this. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The point here being, Timothy, you can tell who the follower, the true followers of Christ are by the way they live their lives. If someone truly follows the Lord, they will depart from iniquity. They will repent. They will turn away from their sin. They will not continue in this. Um, so I think for Timothy and for any pastor, this has got to be very affirming that if we are faithful to preach God's word, God will, will grant salvation to those who are his, and if people leave, that that is not on them. And the point here is also, 
we, it takes the burden off of a pastor to be entertaining or to give really um, elaborate sermons or, or to try and create these really awesome stories that really bring us in and hold our attention. No, the point is, remember these things. Stay focused on the gospel. Don't allow your speech to fall into a reverent babble where you're just trying to tickle the ears of people. He, uh, Paul talks about that uh, in chapter 4. For, uh, four three. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So you could see how it'd be tempting for Timothy, pastors after Timothy, pastors today, elders today, to wash down the truth of God's word, to not give it its true credit, its true due in their preaching, but to water it down and to preach in a way that is just, you know, it tickles your ear, it entices us, it draws us in because it makes us feel good or we like what we're hearing, as opposed to just allowing God's word to have its day, to, to speak in truth and boldness what God has said. And that is what power really comes from. The power to save only comes through the word of God. It doesn't come through our ability to create elaborate sermons, um, to have a great story, or to have a really great youth program, or whatever it may be. You know, a lot of churches focus on things that are not central to the gospel as a way of bringing people in, um, but then is the gospel really there? All right. Chapter tw uh, verse 20. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Um, now, this great house gives us the idea that this is not the same as in Romans 9, where Paul talks about some, the guy creating vessels for um, honor and some for dishonor. He talks about, uh, you know, comparing it to God has created some to be elect and to be saved and that that is an honorable use. But God has also created people that are going to suffer eternal damnation and that still brings glory to God. And that's, and it, it doesn't make sense to us, but that's, that's what God has done. That's not what we're talking about here, though. This is more in reference to people who are in the church, whether or not they are going to allow themselves to be used by God. Um, there are, um, so the emphasis here is that we would cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, that would be this way of teaching, of tickling to the ear, of irreverent babble, or, you know, wandering about myths and all sorts of other things. Um, because, again, this is talking mostly to teachers. It also talks about, you know, let's, let's make sure that we're living in a way that is in accordance with God's word, uh, that we would be set apart as holy. You know, that there's this idea of sanctification, that we are pursuing God, we are allowing ourselves to become more and more like Christ. Um, and that if we are not, God's not going to use us. We may want to be used, but he's not. He's not going to use someone who, in a way that is helpful to his kingdom 
if we are not giving our life to God. There are plenty of people, several and prominent pastors who have huge churches and you can tell from the way they live their life and the way they preach that they are not um, doing these things. They are in a dishonorable use category. They are leading people astray. Um, in preparation for this, I looked up a few interesting things that um, Christianity Today, I think it was, uh, had an article about a survey that was done of Christians in the United States. Um, the Bible isn't literally true, was the statement they asked of the people. 26% of evangelical Christians affirmed that. The Bible isn't literally true. 53% of the U.S. population was in the same accordance. The more shocking ones would be that 56% uh, of evangelicals said Jesus isn't the only way to God, which is universalism. That God, well, as long as you're following some religion, God will honor that. Like, it's cool. God, God understands you tried. You know, it doesn't matter that you affirm Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's just a matter that you tried. Um, and that's, uh, that's a heresy that is existing in the church today. 73% uh, of evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God. Now, that's a very unique heresy. And I think, I wonder if the, maybe sometimes people are just confused by that kind of question. But no, that's... Jesus was not created by God. Jesus is God. Um, and much of the early church is spent trying to sift out these kind of heresies. Um, so, you know, people that are uh, continuing to pursue or uh, teach these types of things in the church, because that is happening. There are pastors who are teaching these sort of things in the house. They are, not, they are not being useful to the master. They are not being useful to the Lord. So then Paul tells Timothy um, how, to, how to kind of handle these issues. How do we deal with false teachers? How do we deal with um, these men who want to teach God's word, who desire to, to preach God's word, and then are led astray and fall into these myths and fall into these false teachings? How does Timothy handle that? And that's kind of the, the rest of this chapter. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Um, so this is how Timothy's to respond to, you know, teachers that are, are leading people astray. One is, obviously, if it's severe enough, they just need to be cut out. You know, that's, that's what Paul did with uh, Hymenius. I can't say his name. Um, that's, that was his response. That was what was needed in that time. And sometimes that is the appropriate response. And then there are other times where, you know, Paul kind of gets into this. So Paul tells Timothy the Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Um, now, in other places, in 1 Corinthians, we're told to flee youthful passions in a sexual way. That that's a, a youthful passion is uh, pursuing lust and things like that. That's, that's not, I think, what he's talking about here. Uh, in light of what he's talking about in terms of 
handling God's word rightly and dealing with these teachers, I think the, the youthful passion here he's talking about is that desire to be quarrelsome, to be hot-tempered, to rush into these arguments. Um, there is certainly a general appeal to righteousness here. I'm not saying there's not. But I think that the passion of youth here is that there's a tendency to rush into arguments like that. Um, uh, so then he's told not, not to do that, have, um, uh, but to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Um, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Elsewhere it talks about... Um, uh, yeah, at the end of the chapter, talking about people listening, not listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. Uh, we know in Ephesus that before Paul got there, magical arts and uh, superstitions, following witch, you know, witchcraft, where it was extremely prevalent. Um, so I think it's a temptation, especially for the church in Ephesus, but even, you know, and, and the church at large to uh, pursue things that have nothing to actually do with the, what God says or to take what God says and try to figure things out. Um, one of the more common things we see in our society and have seen for hundreds of years since Christ left was people trying to predict when will God actually return. That would be an example of people falling into these myths and, and, and controversies that have nothing to actually do with the gospel and lead people astray. Um, sometimes you know, it's extremely tragic, but most of the time it just makes people look foolish. Uh, but, you know, many major leaders of the Christian, Christian faith, not the Christian faith, more like her heretical Christians, have claimed, oh, Jesus is coming back this point in time. Uh, Joseph Smith famously quote, uh, suggested that Jesus would be back before he turned 83. Didn't happen. Um, there are many examples. Like, there's literally thousands of examples of this and probably more that aren't even cataloged. Um, another one would be looking at Revelation and end times and trying to say, oh, well, this is exactly what God is going to do. I know it. It's premillennial. Well, how, how could we ever possibly know and, and, and if we did, what purpose does it actually fulfill for us? Revelation is there to show us how God will judge the world, how there will be judgment, that his people will endure, that God will fulfill his promise to his people. Um, and there are other truths that we can take away from that. But to, to try and nail down, okay, well, you believe that, and that's crazy. And people will spend hours and days and months and years of their life arguing about these things that have nothing to do with the gospel, and they don't lead to holiness. They lead to controversies. They just lead to people arguing. They lead to pride and puffing us up. Um, another one that I kind of hesitate to bring up, but is uh, reformed theology versus free will. Uh, in college, I, I grew up and I was in uh, a church that, you know, was pretty consistent in believing that, you know, will humans have free will to choose to follow God or not, and the idea that God chooses his people was nuts. Um, and I remember in college, I was the guy in our hall who would get called in if there was an argument for Calvinism, and there were a lot of Calvinists on our hall, um, and I was the guy that they would call in, well, David's got an argument, you should listen to him. 
and, and it's, I, it's shameful to me, they're all earthly arguments. I look back at it now, I'm like, man, how foolish I was. And I was always so like convinced I was right, and I was a little hot-headed and prideful and arrogant. And you know what? None of it led to holiness. None of it led to following God. Um, and I think that's that. And you know, on the other side, there was that as well. You know, that we all were just, and we would be consumed with that on our hall. I vividly remember, like many nights, just all of us kind of arguing, but it wasn't like. We wouldn't say not totally not holy, but it wasn't leading to godliness. It wasn't building others up. Um, if anything, it was causing us to drift further apart. Um, <clears throat> Paul tells Timothy, um, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So there's this... Uh, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents opponents with gentleness. So, and I'm just so thankful for this, because it almost sounds like this whole time that Paul is just saying, don't engage, don't argue, don't just, you know, cut them out, maybe if they're not doing the right thing. But no, he says in 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Um, there is a point in time when we are to correct false teaching, um, because it's not always born out of evil. Uh, it's not always born out of a desire to lead people astray. Paul himself had to correct Peter. Peter was um, with the circumcision party, and uh, if you know Christian history, uh, so you got Jews who are trying to insist that Gentiles of the day be circumcised, that you could only really follow God you can't really be a Christian unless you follow the Old Testament law. And one of the key indicators of that is being circumcised. And so Peter kind of was, he knew that it wasn't right, but he would practice things differently. Uh, he would eat with Gentiles if Jews weren't around, but then when the Jews showed up, Peter wouldn't do that anymore. Um, so there was the Jerusalem Council, and Paul and many others had to argue, no, it doesn't matter. Jesus is able to save everyone. It does not matter whether you uh, are circumcised, whether you follow the law. It is not dependent on our earthly works. It is a repentance of the heart. It is a circumcision of the heart, and that if we repent, we are, God will save us, and that is what matters. Um, so there is a time for correcting these things. Uh, throughout church history, there have been many false teachers, many false teachings that have had to be corrected, specifically in regards to Christ. Uh, many people have believed that Jesus wasn't actually God. He was adopted by God. Jesus didn't have a physical body. He just had a spiritual body, but it was kind of looked like a real body because he couldn't actually be fully God and fully man because that's, you know, people can't comprehend that. How can someone be fully God and fully man? Uh, people have taught that Jesus was sometimes fully man and sometimes fully God, but never at the same time, and it depended on the situation. Um, there are literally probably six more versions of those things. And many times, and it's all of those things come from not being able to just take God's word at its face value. It's not rightly handling the word of God. It is taking man's logic and trying to, well, you know, take what we know and process God's word through that instead of allowing God's word to just have its full effect in our hearts. Um, but not everything needs to be corrected. So 
he talks about patiently enduring evil. Um, and I don't know if this is the exact right scenario here, uh, but there's the idea um, in Romans, Paul talks about the weaker and stronger brother, that there are times when we may have a, a, a better understanding of things. He talks about food offered up to idols and drinking, and that these things are permissible for Christians. It is, doesn't matter if food's offered up to idols. Idols are meaningless. So it doesn't actually have any effect on our spiritual being, but that was a struggle for people at the time, that they would feel defiled if they ate food that was offered to idols, especially Jews. That was a big, big no-no in Judaism. Um, and drinking as well. And Paul's point in this is you're, you're not supposed to go around and convince everyone and get them to your same point of, you know, theological correctness. We are to bear with those people, to protect those people. If we try to convince them otherwise, Paul says we're, we're actually causing them to sin because their conscience is telling them no. So if their conscience tells them no, that's sin. You're causing them to sin. Um, so this doesn't mean we go around trying to correct every single thing that we see wrong in people in terms of their theology and the way they're living. Um, if it's relative, if it's important to the gospel, if it's something that is, is causing them to not trust in God fully, to not trust in his grace, to, to think that they have to earn something or have to earn God's pleasure, um, that would be an instance of times when we do need to say, no, 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 look at God's word. And then there are times when we need to just patiently bear with people. <clears throat> and all of this is done, uh, when we go to correct people, it's done with gentleness. It's done with a heart that desires to see people turn and truly follow the Lord, not to get people to be on our side, not to get people to think we are smart, not to puff ourselves up with pride. We go in gentleness and humility. Um, and the reason is that we go with this attitude. We go with this attitude that God may perhaps grant them repentance. That is our goal, is that people would repent. If there are things where they are not giving God's word its proper respect, if they are not following God's word as they should, that our desire would be that they repent, and that would lead them to a knowledge of the truth. So the point here is these people uh, in this passage specifically, because I've said a lot of things, but in this passage specifically, we're talking about people who are not following God, who are outside of his kingdom versus those in it at this point. So we're, we're desiring that even though people may say they're Christians, they're, they're teaching things and practicing these things that are not in line with what God has said, that is not honoring him. Um, and it is often marked by their lifestyle, by the way that they live. Are they actually bearing fruit? Are they repentant? Are they living righteously? These are things that are somewhat evident to us. And our desire as we go to correct these people is that God would grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Um, we can't lead anyone to, to repent. We can't lead anyone to, as it says in 26, come to their sentence, senses. It's that God may perhaps grant it. 
Again, it's all on God to do this. We have to faithfully serve God. We have to faithfully preach his word. We have to faithfully go to people and gently try to correct them. But it is all on God to do it. So if we do these things and people don't repent, it's not on us. It means that God knows who are his and they are not. They are not repentant. God has not given that, that desire in their heart to repent. Um, and it talks about the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. So there is a sense in which these leaders are fulfilling Satan's will. When they, and they, they think that they're doing God's will. They, they, they really do. I mean, some of them probably realize they're just living selfishly. But there's a sense in which they think they're doing God's will. In reality, they are doing the devil's will. Um, they're falling into this pitfall that is enticing to them. It's a trap, the snare of the devil. There's something appealing about it um, that entices people to follow it. A, a common one today is the prosperity gospel. It's really easy to look at the gospel, to look at God's word and say, well, you know, if you're really following God, you shouldn't ever be sick. You should be healthy all the time. You should be wealthy. And if you're not, you're not really following God. You don't have enough faith. That's a common teaching in America today. It's a little more subtle than that, but that's what it boils down to. That they look at these promises of the Old Testament of this blessing being poured on Israel if they follow God, um, and that's true. But in our, at today, it's talking about an eternal blessing. God will bless us eternally if we are faithful to him. Because what does Paul tell us in 1 Timothy and all throughout, script, all throughout the New Testament? We are promised suffering. That's what Jesus promises us. The world has hated me. They will hate you. If we follow Jesus truly, there will be suffering. There will be difficulty. Um, so we need to avoid that snare of the devil to fall into these bad theological, bad ways of thinking about God's word and practice of God's word that cause us to lead others astray, to fall into that trap. Um, <clears throat> back to my story about you know college days. I remember with... Uh, Reformed theology versus free will. Um, this isn't a great example because, again, I don't think it's exactly central to the gospel. But it does present, I think, a way of which this gentleness approach helps. So in college, it was just fashion heads. You know, well, God isn't a loving God if he chooses and some people are being condemned and all that. And, you know, me using man's logic is really what it came down to. Some scripture, but most of it was man's reasoning, if I'm being honest. Um, I remember coming here and talking with Kyle about it, talking with my father-in-law, Ed, about it, and they didn't change my mind. But there was this huge difference of just this gentleness of saying, well, you know, as I look at God's word and just kind of pointing some things out, and the more I read God's word, the more I just became just impressed with this, like, I was like, how could I have missed it? It's overwhelming. Of course God chooses. Of course there's this elect where God has said, you are mine and you didn't do anything to earn it, but I'm going to pour out my grace on you. You know, um, and it wasn't anyone changing my mind, but the gentleness that was given to me, and it allowed me to soften to this idea. Um, and again, it's, this is an issue that's not central to gospel, so it's a little different, but I think it does represent the idea that when we go to people gently and try to talk to them about God's word and point them to God's word, instead of just trying to win arguments, how impactful that can be and how God can use that. Um, 
So I'm happy to say I'm a full-blown Christian now because I'm a Reformed. But <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, it, it still took me years for that, to, for that change to really happen. Um, I definitely was saved before that, and there are definitely people that believe that that are saved because, again, it's not central to the gospel. They still can believe God saved, you know, I have to have faith in God. God has done this for me. If I don't do that, I'm on my own and I have to pay my punishment or God can pay it. They just think that, well, I chose this, which I don't agree with anymore, but that doesn't really change the central point of the gospel, right? So that would be an issue there. We can agree to disagree. Like, you know, does it matter? No. It does, but not in eternal ways and who knows because even as we look at the more I learn about it I'm just like uh, I don't know <laughs> who knows how where does where does where does God's sovereignty begin and God's election begin and man's responsibility and all that it's just really difficult for our brains to comprehend there are lots of things like that um, so what is our response as parishioners as the church of uh, God when we look at this because this passage is mainly talking about people who are teaching what is the responsibility of the rest of us? How do we um, look at this and, and decide what, what does God want us to do? First, I would just say, I think the biggest takeaway from this is to um, discern whether or not, one, we are rightly handling the word of truth, and two, whether the, the teacher is rightly handling the word of truth. Um, we are told to test everything uh, and then in First Peter, and I've lost my notes, so First Peter tells us to test every spirit. And the way we know whether a spirit um, or teaching is following the Lord is whether or not they proclaim Christ as risen um, and as Lord. So when we sit under teaching, we are not to just blindly go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. We need to look at it and compare it to God's word. Because not every church is a gospel-preaching church. Not every teacher is a gospel-preaching teacher. We need to take what they say and actually weigh it against what God's word says. Um, and we need to not be harsh in this because people are imperfect. But it's more of what is the heart of the, the teaching? What is the heart? Is it directing us to follow God, to pursue righteousness, to repent? Um, is it leading us in a way that is honoring the Lord, or is it leading us astray? Is it leading us into these myths and frivolous controversies? Um, so that would be, I think, the biggest takeaway for most of us is as we sit under teaching, we need to, one, make sure that we are doing our best to understand God's word, to rightly handle the word of truth. And then as we receive teaching, we, we need to be mostly open to it, but also discerning and not just you know, following blindly whatever is being said and not allowing ourselves to be like the people he talks about who are just listening to teachers who are tickling their ears, hearing things we want to hear. We need to, if you don't sometimes come to church and feel convicted, there's probably a problem. Um, but that would be, I think, a largest takeaway for most of us tonight uh, is one, be diligent, be worker approved. Um, pursue God, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, love, and peace, and as we sit under teaching, to be regularly evaluating it. And as I said, in my personal opinion, I think this church does that really, really well, and that's why I'm here. So, let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. I thank you for, I thank you for our pastors and elders. Lord, I thank you uh, for their just um, hearts for you, as I have seen um, just through years and years of teaching, uh, just a genuine desire to see your, your name lifted high, uh, to see your word given the utmost respect, um, and it, to be the source of all things, Lord, that every decision and every word that is uttered is done so in a way that is desiring to serve and love you, uh, and to see that your gospel would be furthered, truly. Father, I just ask that you would help all of us uh, to be diligently um, seeking you, Lord, to pursue you, as, as you said through your servant Paul to Timothy, that we would rightly handle your word, that we would see what you have said, Lord, and allow that to have its effect in our heart and not to just look for things we want to in your word or to twist them to serve our own needs. Lord, I just ask that you would uh, bless us as we go out tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.